This is from Intern to Entrepreneur, the podcast for counseling and therapy graduate students who want to start planning their journey to private practice while they're still in grad school. I'm your host, Corey White, and within three years of graduating from my master's program, I had a six-figure thriving private practice, in large part because I started planning my path while I was still in grad school. This podcast is full of stories and information meant to give you ideas about how you can carve your own path to the therapy career that you want. Please note that when you're listening to this podcast, licensure laws and requirements vary from state to state. So check with your state board about what you can and can't do on your journey. And without further ado, enjoy this episode of From Intern to Entrepreneur. Oh, hey there, grad students. This is episode eight of From Intern to Entrepreneur. And before we get into today's interview, I just want to pause to say that this morning before I in, uh, recorded this, I went on to my podcast analytics to see, you know, are people listening? Are they not listening? And I saw that from the first seven episodes, there have been 250 plays of this podcast. Now, that's not a huge number, but it also kind of does feel like a huge number because as I look at that, it means that there's like 36 people that are listening to each episode. Okay, really it's 35 because I listen to each one. So I guess I need to subtract myself from that. I need to make sure um, that they sound good from start to finish. But okay, but 35. And when you're starting something new, like this is what I want to be a teachable moment to anybody listening to this right now. When you're starting something new, like potentially opening a practice, it's the little numbers that are going to add up. So like, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, like I would really like to have more than 250 plays on this podcast to really make it worth my time. But I'm also going, I just started this shit. And so that feels really good. So celebrate your small wins and I'm celebrating this one. But anyway, the podcast today, the interview is with Beth Gustin. Beth is a licensed professional counselor. And after she was working as a blindness skills trainer and a program manager for an independent living center and as a therapist at two community health centers, she decided it was time for her to go full-time private practice. She specializes in disenfranchised grief, including service dog and pet loss grief, that's so important, human death loss, and grief related to living with a disability. In her downtime, she enjoys reading and spending time with family and friends and being in nature. One of my favorite things about Beth's interview is that she talks about how this was her third attempt at private practice, and she talks about some of the struggles and the things that she wished she knew. And I just think it's so important that we're talking about the things that we've struggled with and not just our wins um, and not just sort of seeing people and going, wow, like they have it all together, hearing about the things that we wish we knew and the attempts that we've made at things that we had to go back and learn more before they were really going to be what we want them to be. And and that's sort of Beth's story. So I'm going to let Beth tell her own story, though. She's so good at doing it. I hope you guys learn something from her and feel inspired by her story. So grad students, meet Beth. Hi, Beth. It's so good to have you on the podcast today. I'm so happy that you're here. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I want to jump right into it and get started by having you tell our listeners, our grad student listeners, a little bit about your journey to being a therapist and then also your journey to being in private practice and all the twists and turns that you had along those ways. 
Sure. So I think as with many of us, it was a long and winding road that is still evolving. Um, so just for reference point, uh, I graduated because I'm old, like back in 05. Um, so that seems like a long time ago. But prior to that point, I always knew I wanted to be a therapist or in the helping professions in some way. Uh, both my parents were teachers. And when I was in eighth grade, I was a peer counselor. So I got to talk with the sixth and seventh graders, mainly sixth graders, about their challenges kind of going from elementary school to middle school. And so so that's sort of set me on the path. Yeah, this has been in your bones. It has, yes, yes. Um, there's a slight delay, so I apologize for that because I don't hear you until I'm still talking. That's okay, we'll run with it. Okay. Uh, yes, I was in my bones. Uh, so then I had a lot of a personal experience with loss throughout the years, um, both from deaths by suicide of people I knew, uh, death from cancer of relatives and things like that. And so combined that with all the pet loss that I experienced growing up, that further cemented that therapy is where I was meant to be. I originally wanted to be a music therapist. And then for some personal reasons at the time in my life, when I was starting college, decided that didn't make sense. And so then I was looking into play therapy and um, being totally blind. I was discouraged from that. Looking back, I think I could have found ways to have made that work, but at that time I, I didn't. Um, so throughout college and grad school, I actually was on the couples and family track and decided that after grad school, um, well, after grad school, it was hard to get a job for me. So I had volunteered a lot because there's these things called licensure hours you have to get to get your license. And I was panicking because I couldn't get a job right out of grad school. So I volunteered a lot at a hospice, at an adult daycare, at a homeless shelter, and did a lot of that kind of work to get my hours for licensure. Um, and got my first job as a contract therapist for about six months. Um, and then I transitioned from that to something totally off track, <laughs> which was a what they call a low vision or blindness skills trainer at an independent living center, which for those of you who don't know, independent living centers are places that work with clients of all different disabilities and help them to either maintain or regain independence when they are experiencing a disability. So through them, I actually became a program manager and I started what we called a life skills and adjustment counseling program because I saw a need for mental health support for these individuals who were experiencing uh, an acquired disability, uh, in my case, vision loss. And so I did that for about six to eight years and then left to do community mental health work because I wanted to follow my passion, which was full-time mental health therapy. And I worked at two community mental health agencies and now I'm finally in full-time private practice. Uh, and I've also experienced some, some service dog deaths along the way and, and more pet loss and, and human loss. And so all this to say, grief and loss just made sense. <laughs> Uh, as my focus and, and where I am meant to be. And further kind of specializing in service dog and pet loss grief also has made sense. But it's been a very long and winding road to get here. I always know I wanted, like I said, to be a therapist. I always wanted my own practice, didn't quite know how to get there. And I am finally, but it was definitely a much longer road than I thought it would be. This is my third attempt in private practice and it's working this time. 
Ooh, can you tell us a little bit about that, your third attempt? So um, when I was trying to get employed after grad school, I tried private practice um, with some supervision um, and supervisor's encouragement. And then I dropped that the first time when I acquired a full-time job. And then I tried it again when I was trying to transition out of being a program manager. And then I got a job at a community health agency. So I dropped it again. So I think that's a really cool part of your story because I think often we think about our stories and we go, okay, well, when I do this, when I decide I'm going to have a private practice, I'm just going to have it. And what you're saying is that you tried it twice and it didn't quite work out. Um, Is there anything, do you, how do I say this? Is there anything that you know now that if you knew back then it would have made it successful the first or second time around? Yes. Um, this might be a little repetitive throughout the podcast, but if I had known a, that private practice was more of an option outside of grad school. Cause in, when I was going to grad school, that really wasn't talked about as a direction we could go. And there weren't a lot of group practice owners that I was aware of who hired interns. So I didn't know that was even an option, but also I think networking would have been key to help me become more successful the first and or second time around. And I didn't know how to do that back then. Mm, How did you learn how to do that now? I think just talking to their therapist, I belong to something called Practice of the Practice, which is a monthly membership group. And through them, you have a lot of pre-recorded video content to, to learn about the building a private practice from the ground up and from naming it to writing blogs to SEO to anything and everything to becoming what they call a a group practice boss. So you can go from solo practitioner all the way through group practice. And then they're branching out now into um, how to become public speaker and author and things like that. But through them, because it's a really supportive community, I learned about some tips on how to network. And I believe in maintaining good relationships with anyone you meet and building those relationships and building those bridges. And I also took some trainings on public speaking because it's something else I would like to do. And through those trainings, combined with practice of the practice, I just learned, one, the importance of networking, and two, I've learned some ways on how to network more effectively. Hey, grad students, real quick before we get back to this interview, if you are loving the idea of being a part of a community of like-minded graduate students who want to own their own private practice one day, then you need to head to Facebook and join my Facebook group, From Intern to Entrepreneur. There's already a community set up of graduate students who one day want to own their own private practices and be entrepreneurs just like you. So head over to Facebook, join that group, and stay in the loop and get connected with people who are doing things that you want to do. Back to the interview. When you're in grad school, you may not know where you're going to end up. I did not initially plan to specialize in grief and loss back then. Um, but networking would have helped me realize all of my options available to me. It would have helped me realize how to build referral sources and how to be successful in private practice. Um, For me, I've chosen to do a completely private pay practice. I don't take insurance. And that's another road you can go down. But again, these things were not talked about when I was in grad school. 
Yeah. And I think to some extent that is still the case. I think that certainly now it is more available. Um, I graduated from my grad program in 2017. And, you know, I, I, I imagine that it was talked about more in 2017 than it was in 2005 and more in 2003 than in 17. But I think still largely there are a lot of programs that are afraid to talk about private practice because I don't know, I guess what I make up is that they're afraid that students aren't ready for it or that it's unethical in some way, or, you know, I don't know. So part of what I'm trying to do here is have people like you come and tell the stories about, yeah, I wish I would have known how to network because that would have helped me get to where I wanted to be quicker. Absolutely. Do you think that networking now is is a main driver into your current success as a private practice therapist? So I'm still building a caseload. Um, I was doing really well with that. And then I kind of had a slump as a lot of us did the past couple months. Um, mm. So I think finding your marketing strategy that you are comfortable with. Is it social media marketing, which I also do. So I have Instagram and I have Facebook and I have LinkedIn and I try to post everything you know, things daily there. Uh, but, you know, is it blogging? Because blogging is also a big way to get people in the door. And so for me, it's networking and social media marketing, and I, I do want to start blogging. But, you know, for some people like to create brochures and go pass them out to different agencies. Um, I think it's also knowing who to network with. So it's important to network with people who provide the same type of therapy, like grief and loss in my case. But it's also important to find people that could be referral sources to you. So for example, I specialize in, among other things, pet loss grief. And so networking with veterinarians and crematoriums and pet cemeteries, you know, and things like that, groomers, um, that's going to be more referral sources for me. So knowing that is going to help you kind of figure out, again, where to put your energy. I love that you're saying that because it's reminding me about how creative we can be and how we can use networking to be creative. So yeah, I absolutely understand how if one of your specialty areas is grief over pet loss, how cool is it to be able to go into a groomer and form a relationship with someone who is not at all involved in a therapy space, but that you can still have a professional relationship with? That's pretty cool. It is. And you know, like I said, I'm still building. So it's definitely been a slow process, but you also can't meet with these people just one time. You know, if you're going to go to coffee with someone, you need to build that relationship and nurture it. So it is circling back and like, hey, it's been six months. Would you like to meet up again? How are things going? Um, it's constantly being being out there. And if you take insurance, you don't have to do that. So again, that's something else to think about when you're in grad school and going forward is what works for you? Because either path is fine. Or so I have a question about two. that. When you were in grad school, you had mentioned that you did see yourself in the future in private practice. Um, but did you ever imagine that you would have a private pay practice? And and did you ever imagine you would not take insurance? I think I knew early on that if it was at all possible, I would like to not take insurance um, mm -hmm. because I knew it was possible to be successful in a private pay practice but it was going to be a much different road, possibly longer. Um, I like to talk. And so for me, it, it felt more comfortable to, to be out there a little more, um, but it does take a ton more energy. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I have a private pay practice too. And it's exactly the same thing where there are people that I know in my local area that were able to build really fast with an insurance-based practice because they were getting referrals from the insurance companies where I was out here kind of like hustling and and, and going to coffee and, and creating blogs and doing all of this stuff that allowed me to be able to build a private pay practice. So I totally agree. And also for me personally, I found it really worth it to to do all those things. And I find it really fulfilling to be able to expand what I do from just being, okay, I'm a clinician and I write notes and I talk to these people like, no, no, no. I am a marketer and I go out and I meet with people and I create content for my website. And I find that stuff really kind of fulfilling and rewarding to be able to diversify the work that I'm doing outside of just being a clinician. I think that's something that doesn't get talked about in grad school a lot at all. I agree. I think, you know, it allows for a much more creative side to come forward if that's who you are. Totally. And are you, what, how, how would you say that is for you? As far as? Mm. Like, uh, would you say that, do you have a creative side and, and, and in what ways has being in private practice uh, pulled that out? So no, I don't have a creative side. <laughs> and um, I'm laughing because, so again, being, being totally blind, I don't see color. I cannot find photos easily online to, to put with my content. I don't have a good eye for content layout. And so I do pay someone to help with the social media marketing side of things um, so that we can make the content pretty and, and visually appealing. Um, I, I love public speaking. I love to educate people. So I'm, that's more my creativity. I like to do a lot of well, I miss in-person workshops. I like that energy from myself and the back and forth with the, with the people I'm talking with. That's where my creativity usually comes through. That's where my humor comes through. And humor is a huge part of who I am and how I, and how I am. But that can be really hard to convey in, at least for me, in online content. I would totally agree. And when you first started answering that and you're like, no, like I'm not creative. I'm like, I feel like that's not true because I did a little internet stalking of you. And like, I've seen some of the things that you do. I do that with all my guests. I'm like, I got to know a little bit more here. And yeah. So I, I think that um, to be honest, my personal opinion is that some of the social media marketing, I think that stuff can be actually boring, even if it's creative and it's not knocking anything anybody's doing. I think that what you're talking about, like being able to create workshops, being able to speak to groups, to me, I think that that is, um, I don't know, a more true form of creativity in some ways then going, okay, here's an Instagram square off of this Canva template that I created, which I do and is creative still, but but yeah, I guess that don't sell yourself short, girl. I hear that, you know, and I'm not doing the workshops yet. I'm not running the groups yet that I'd like to be doing because my brain is very much a one thing at a time. Like let's build the practice and get the individual client caseload you want and then work on the next thing. And that's something else I'm learning. <laughs> Keyword is learning. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do it that way. And maybe you need to be uh, more out of your comfort zone than I am at the present moment in, in the sense that if you have ideas, do not hold them back. If you think mm. you've got a workshop, put it together and throw it out there. Yeah, it may be poorly attended the first time. It may not be. You won't know until you try. 
You want to run a group on something? Go find group space if you don't have it or do it online. Try it. I have this rule that I do things by, which is essentially I don't do anything in my private practice or in any of my businesses unless it's going to give me at least two rewards in some way. And so when I think about, you know, creating a group or something, I think about, okay, well, the reward to this could be financial, but if I create a group, I've part of the reward is I've created something that is templated that I can do again. Yeah. So even if it doesn't make me rich on this first round, right? Sure. I've created something that I can do again in the future. And so I think if if we look at and and for grad students too, I think that if you look at things as if you're going to write a paper on, you know, I remember in my grad program we had to create a group of some sort. I don't remember exactly what the assignment was, but we had to like come up with something. Mm -hmm. And I wish I could go back in time and I wish I could create a real group that I had hoped to run, even though I couldn't run it right then, that I'd run in three years because then I would have the template of that group. I would be checking off the box of getting the assignment. I would have the template of a group. And then in three years from then, I could have got paid to do it. Um, so and I'm sitting here laughing because I have the templates. I've put them together. I've, I just haven't taken the next step. And so I'm laughing because I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I see you, you have, you have templates. You can do this. Um, I also so think again, it's I share the- cool for people to hear from you that like, even though you're in private practice currently, it seems like you still have some hesitations around uh, doing certain things. So what I will share is that I have been in private practice full-time for six months, no, eight months. So this is still a new full-time, my only source of income job to me. I've been That's awesome. This, I've been doing this part-time for years, um, but I took a leap and left my community mental health job and um, didn't look back and I'm making it work. And yes, there's hesitancy because, well, I've been doing this for years, I'm also new at this, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What was that like to take that leap to drop the community mental health job? So I will share that I, one reason that took me longer to make that leap is I intentionally banked everything I made in private practice, didn't touch that income so that I could save up you know, a good six to nine months of income that if private practice had a slump or if you know, I didn't succeed, which I am and I will. Uh, but if I had some challenging months, I'd be okay. And I'm I'm not a big risk taker. So for me, that was really important to make sure that, okay, I need to make sure that I have kind of a goal in mind of six months of income saved up so that I will be okay. Beth, this is such valuable, juicy nuggets of information. I always try to help people understand that they have to be good financial custodians mm-hmm. in order to be successful in private practice. And you're not going to just get out of grad school and have a full practice, or you're not just going to quit your job and then start a full practice. So I, I always encourage people, no, you should probably have two jobs. You should pro- Well, you should probably have a job and then also have a small private practice as right. you build. Now, for some people, you might not have to do that. And that's fine. I'm not saying that that's everybody's path, but you can create so much more financial stability if you have a home base to make your money. And then I love that you're saying that, okay, you had that home base to make your money. And then in your private practice, all of that money went towards saving for 
whatever stability you might have needed when you made that transition. I think it's so smart for people to really understand that the more financial security you create for yourself, the easier it's going to be to be successful because you're going to make good decisions, not scarcity decisions. And, you know, I ran numbers over and over and over. How many clients a week do I need before I can leave? What am I charging? Is that enough? Is, you know, I, I just ran numbers over and over and over to make sure that, yes, like this is your target goals. Once you reach these, you can do this. So I went from full-time to part-time, which normally you can't do that, but the universe and I were working well together and there was a part-time position in the same outpatient team and I took it. So I was able to step down from full-time to part-time to no time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I kind of view that too as like, you know, um, in business, generally you have a plan for growth or for changing direction or for whatever it is that you might be trying to do. And I hear you just saying that was just part of my business plan. Part of my business plan is that I would tear it down, um, titrate down from my primary job so that I could pick up on what I want my primary job to be. I think just thinking about it so flexibly rather than all or nothing, either I have a private practice or I don't, either I'm in community mental health or I'm not. It, I just think it opens up so many doors and allows for a faster transition from being a graduate to getting your foot in the door uh, and getting it your whole body in the door in private practice. So I don't know if you agree with that, but that's how I feel about it. I, I agree with that. I'm kind of thinking about, you know, I feel like I'm a little bit older, if you will, than many therapists, not all, to mm -hmm. be kind of just now finally in the full-time private practice world. And I think that goes back to, I didn't know I didn't know. And if you don't know what mm -hmm. you don't know, you don't quite know how to get where you know you want to be. Sure. And so- you know, I think perseverance has definitely paid off, but looking back, are there things I wish I would have known done differently? A hundred percent. Absolutely. There are, yeah. you know, and like I said, networking is one of the things that I wish I would have known more about how to do. And I do see a huge increase, at least here in Colorado of group practices who hire interns. And when I was in grad school, we had not very many options to choose from that at least that I was aware of. Yeah. And so I think that's, huge step forward for those of you in grad school who who would like to do private practice from the outset. If you can get an internship at a group practice, you are going to learn so many of these skills that for me, it took a long time to learn. Yes, I think that that is a great piece of information too, that if you have a hope of being in private practice and you can do your internship at a private practice, you should absolutely do that because you're going to be getting the experience of being in a private practice setting without owning one. Uh, I think it makes it more difficult. If you've never worked in a private practice setting and you go, I'm going to start one, there's a lot of information that you don't have. There's a lot of experiences that you don't have that I've never worked in community mental health. So I, I will say that. But I imagine that if you go from community mental health solely to private practice solely, there's going to be a really big learning curve there. There is. And that's why I really appreciate practice of the practice and the small groups and things that that membership offers. And no, I'm not paid to promote them. I promise. Um, I've just <laughs> found it very, very valuable. Um, I, uh, I'm hesitating because I, 
I do have a referral code I can give for anyone that would like one, but um, (laughs) that benefits us both. But um, having said that, I think that, yes, there's a lot of things that you don't know until you're in it, which is why I liked the, the path I took of just kind of titrating down and stepping up and building more slowly. For me, that worked better. I also think it's important to know the kind of person you are. Private practice is not for the faint of heart. It is stressful. It is anxiety inducing. You have to wear every single hat, at least initially. And are you okay with that? You know, where if you're in community mental health or a, a group practice, which can be a great place to stay your whole entire life, you don't have all the stress of owning the business. You don't have that stress of being the marketer, being the biller, being the receptionist, being the therapist, being it, because that's what we do. So if you're a solo practitioner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. The different hats that you wear when you're in private practice. If you're the kind of person that would get the most fulfillment out of life from going to work, doing a good job, going home and checking out forever from your job, um, private practice is probably not for you. Because even if you can get to that point, even if the goal is to get to the point where where that is what your day looks like, it takes a lot of hustle in the beginning to build a successful practice and be an entrepreneur. So yeah, I think that you, it's not for the faint of heart. You definitely have to be willing to put the work in that it takes to do all the different things in the private practice. Totally agree. So let me ask you these two questions. One is a practical piece of advice and one is around mindset. If you could give graduate students one piece of practical advice to help them on their entrepreneurial journey, what advice would you give them? I'm going to go back to network, network, network. Get out there and meet people. You never know what relationships are going to form. So for example, like I said before, I was a blindness skills trainer and then a program manager. And I left that company in 2014. I now have a contract with them providing mental health support group for them twice a month because I kept that relationship. Um, Yeah. So I circled back, you know, seven, eight years later, Um, but I kept that relationship up the whole entire time I wasn't working there. And I think those, those types of relationships are really helpful. I, well, am I will being... totally agree with that. And, and especially since like, yeah, that's a longstanding relationship, which means you had a lot of years to build trust there. Yes. And the, the blind community, the vision community is small. And so some people want a therapist who is visually impaired or blind. And, and some people don't need that um, who are blind or visually impaired. But it, again, because it is a smaller community, well, it's not my sole focus of what I do. It's something I can offer. And so maintaining those relationships has helped build my practice. Absolutely. So I think, you know, the practical advice, I would just say network and be creative. Yeah. You know, you may be, so you may not get a client from that barista at the coffee shop, but they might know someone who is really good at graphic design and create a logo for you. You know, so just be That's open. That's a really to- good point that I hadn't thought about. Yeah. Like it might not be the, the networking might not be directly for referrals. It might just right. be to, insulate yourself with good business resources. And for me, I like to have a good referral list of other therapists or people that I know that someone else might need. Absolutely. And so networking to me is is the biggest thing I wish I would have n- known and, and started sooner because it has been 
a, a game changer for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So then what is one piece of mindset advice that you would give to grad students who were on their entrepreneurial journey? I have two things come to mind. Can I say two things? Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So there's no rules here. So if someone tells you, you can't don't listen to them because you can. And my journey from grad school to full-time employment was a much longer road than I ever thought I'd have to walk down. But the volunteer experience that I did gave me a, a wide range of experiences that helped me get to where I am now. Looking back, volunteering at a homeless shelter, a hospice, adult daycare, there's a theme of grief and loss on all of that. Mm. But I didn't know that at the time. And so be open to kind of what the universe brings into your life and mm -hmm. don't give up on your dreams. I knew from day one, this is what I wanted. I didn't know it was going to take me this many years to get here, but don't give up. I'm curious about your first piece of advice uh, in terms of, you know, you're saying if people say that you can't, like you can, that sounds like it's coming somewhere personal from you. So I alluded to the fact that I really wanted to be a play therapist at one time. Mm -hmm. And in, in that time of my life, uh, some professors had said, I don't think that's a good idea. You won't be able to see the children's drawings. You won't be able to see the stand tray without knocking figures over. How are you going to do that? Um, I've got a whole box of puppets in my basement that are sitting in storage I don't use, but I bought them back then in the hopes that I could use them as a play therapist as one way I could do it. Um, I was kind of talked like not, not warned against, but kind of guarded against, you're going to have to really get the parents buy-in so you can touch your, the children's hands and see what they're doing. And, you know, it, it, I just don't think that's a good direction for you. That and, is like one of the saddest things I've ever heard. I feel like. Um, and I, I love my adults. I work with 18 and over. I'm really happy now. I tend to work a lot with, with seniors and the elderly and I love it. And so I do think I am truly where I am meant to be. I don't know what life would have looked like had I pushed back and, and paved a different road, but I didn't, you know, I, I chose to listen and, and they're not wrong. It would have been challenging, hmm. but if there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. And I love professors. First of all, let me start by saying this, that I'm Can not about to bash professors. I love professors. They are some of my uh, closest mentors, e even at this stage, years graduated. But I have noticed that when some graduate professors don't see a clear path to something, they tend to tell students they don't know if it's possible. And I think that they underestimate graduate students' ability to think outside the box and be creative and follow their passion in certain areas because they are afraid that their student will fail if it's not an already created path or an easy path. It's funny, you know, being totally blind, I love art projects. I really want to get a group off the ground for grief and loss because I have a lot of cool ideas for experiential art and, and other more visual ways to, to move forward with our grief. And yes, it can be done. Um, but you know, in my twenties, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So your advice about if someone says you can't, you can, that is amazing advice. Um, some of the best advice I've heard actually. Yeah. Is there anything else that you think grad students 
could learn specifically from you that would be helpful on their journey, especially right now at the beginning when they're still in grad school? I'm thinking. <laughs> no, yeah, that's fine. Um, Take your time. I think there's a lot that comes to mind. Um, my path was very different. And I know I go back to the blindness a lot. And that's only one aspect of who I am. But it did inform who I am because I was the only uh, visually impaired blind student from kindergarten through 12th grade. And that is a whole different conversation. But what it mm. taught me through college and grad school is how to be a good advocate. And my parents, like I said, they were teachers and they were awesome. I wouldn't be where I am without them. And I had a lot of good support in preschool and, and from a place called Anchor Center for Blind Children, which helps infants through preschool age children get the skills they need to be successful and equal to their sighted peers. But what all of that taught me is to be a good advocate and to be a good self-advocate and to speak up. So if something isn't working for you or you're struggling with something or you've got questions, ask, say something, because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know until you ask. And it's okay to seek multiple opinions. It's okay to say, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing with my life. Can I get in touch with someone who's doing that? You know, so if there's something that you have a passion for, you want to specialize in, seek to find those people that have been there and done that and can help you not reinvent the wheel from the beginning. So much of what you're saying has come up in all of the interviews that I've did so far. And just what just spoke to me right now is this idea of don't reinvent the wheel. It's yeah. literally something that the last person I interviewed said. And it's so important that, yeah, if you create your own community around you of of people that can fulfill and support you, you don't have to create the wheel because they're going to, they're going to give you part of their wheel. They're going to give you a wheel. I, you know, you get the analogy. You know, um, we, we've all been where you are and all we want to do is help you succeed. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Beth, this has been amazing. I am so grateful for you donating your time to this podcast today uh, once it comes out, anything that you reference to, we'll link in the show notes. How can people get a hold of you if they would like to contact you? So email is, excuse me, email is the best way. Um, my email address is beth at transitioningthroughchange.com. There's also a contact form on my website, which is just transitioningthroughchange.com. So either one of those works well. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Beth. And uh, I can't wait to hopefully connect with you again in the future. I agree. Thank you so much for having me again. And I really enjoyed the opportunity and good luck to all of you listening. You can do this. I hope that you loved this episode of From Intern to Entrepreneur. And if you want to learn more about what we talked about, check out the show notes. If you love this podcast and you want to support me and continuing to create content for entrepreneurs, then please share this with a friend, a grad student who you think might want their own private practice one day. And also like, subscribe, and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it.